eating disorders feel like a cage and um, a lot of patients will feel like they're drowning under the weight of the pressure of the eating disorder and the shame and the, and the lies that they have to keep maintaining in order to keep their eating disorder behaviors alive. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah May, and this is a show all about exploring messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Hey everyone, I'm so excited because today I have my dear friend Marie Acebo on the show with me and we are going to talk about the complicated nature of eating disorders and I think that really is a complicated heart issue and so we are just going to jump right in. So Marie, tell us your official title and a little bit about what you do. Well, my official title at Lancaster General Hospital is to be a dietitian. I am an RD, so I'm a registered dietitian. I'm a certified diabetes educator, and I'm also a licensed dietitian nutritionist in the state of Pennsylvania. I've been working with eating disorders for 32 years. Okay, so Marie, how did you get involved with working with eating disorder patients? It became very apparent when I started working that a lot of the patients that were coming to see me as an outpatient dietitian had more going on with their eating behaviors than just being hungry and eating too many chips. There was something underneath their behaviors that was requiring a lot of discussion. And I realized pretty quickly, I was a pretty young dietitian, that there was an enormous behavioral component that wasn't just um, behavioral management, but it was actually psychological, deep and um, very entrenched into the eating culture was this psychological component that I grew to appreciate and to work with when I was seeing patients. So when I started... Um, working with those patients in Michigan, uh, one of the wise dietitians that I worked with had encouraged me to pursue eating disorders, kind of explore that, and then utilize what I learned in patient care. And so that's what I did. That was just the beginnings. It was real basic. And then when I moved to Pennsylvania, um, my first position working with outpatient nutrition in a hospital setting, I um, encountered the same thing only on a larger scale. And so I was seeing patients of all different backgrounds with a lot of things underneath their eating habits. So teaching them nutrition, which is the behavior component, the lifestyle pieces of that unearth a lot of um, problematic thought processes and really difficult situations. It really brought up a lot of pain, personal pain with a lot of patients. And so the eating disorder work sort of was born out of that. So before you define eating disorders for us, sort of, you know, what forms that takes, you know, what exactly is an eating disorder, how prevalent are eating disorders? Like, do you see it a lot in your work? Um, I mean, obviously this is a specialty that you do, but I don't know if you've read statistics or what age groups you see or what are you seeing? 
One of the interesting components of working with eating disorders is the fact that they are being more widely recognized now than they ever have been. Mental health has been a conversation that we're having in the public realm and in the doctor's office more readily. Patients are seeking assistance, and that is a wonderful thing. So back to your original question is, what is the percentage or how many patients are suffering? And I would tell you that it's an extremely high percentage mm. of people who really deal with disordered eating and then actual official eating disorders um, for a wide variety of reasons, Sarah. It's mm. really an interesting phenomena. Um, some of it is our diet mentality in our culture. Some of it is um, definitely social cultural okay. There's definitely a huge piece of it that we are seeing that is um, trauma-oriented and um, pain-initiated and pain-protective. So we have patients that are really looking to find ways to protect themselves. Um, An interesting little note that you might find um, fascinating is that it's actually a really effective tool for covering pain. And um, one of the things that happened in um, World War II when the um, Jews were in, in um, concentration camps was the Nazi soldiers would starve them. And one of the reasons that they survived was because they were starved. And so their brains were not able to process the trauma and atrocities wow. that were happening to the people. Mm-hmm. So they were because th- so they were numbed out. So patients wow. will oftentimes when they're starved, numb out their pain. And for the Jews, it was highly helpful. They didn't realize it at the time, but part of the reason why they were able to survive was because they were starved. Wow. That is really crazy and really sad. And also, I guess somehow incredible at the same time. You mentioned something interesting, um, and I want you to talk about the difference between disordered eating and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. But before we do that, could you actually define what an eating disorder is and what different forms that takes? Yeah. So eating disorders are actually clinical diagnoses. They are um, a psychiatric or psychological diagnosis. It's uh, There are diagnostic criteria for each one. So with anorexia nervosa, um, it has to do with restrictive eating behaviors. So that's somebody who is... Um, has false beliefs about their body and their eating, um, what the food is doing in their body, what their body can do with the food, the amount that they need to eat um, in order to be healthy and survive. They oftentimes have what we call body dysmorphia or body disturbance, body image disturbances. So they definitely will not see themselves the way that they actually physically are. Mm -hmm. And um, there typically is a a good amount for those patients of um, sort of denial that -hmm. it's happening. Um, We have bulimia nervosa. So um, bulimia nervosa is going to be sort of by definition, um, uh, an ox hunger that, um, is basically 
the patient would succumb to anox hunger, overeating mm-hmm. food, and then they would be doing some kind of compensatory behavior. So yeah. being um, working in nutrition, that's something that I see because I work with um, the eating disorder patients, but I also see it in diabetes care because I specialize in diabetes care as well. And there is something called diabulimia, which is their compensation is um, they would doing a binge eating episode, but instead of compensating by purging or excessive use of laxatives or excessive exercise, they would actually omit insulin, in essence, preventing their bodies from using the calories. Oh, wow. So it's a form, diabe- uh, diabulimia is a form of bulimia or a form of eating mm-hmm. disorder that uses their life-saving medication to perpetuate the disease. Wow. Okay. There's other eating disorders. So there's um, avoidant restrictive eating disorder. We're seeing that a lot more. Um, We have orthorexia, which orthorexia is actually kind of an interesting one that was born out of our social culture of being super fearful and fearful of foods that are not healthy. So orthorexia is, in essence, it, it takes a lot of shapes and forms. Um, and it's a hard one to pick up because it looks so healthy. Somebody who's very obsessed with eating healthy, everything has to be just the way they portray it to be, the way that they feel it's safe or it's good for their bodies. So it might be somebody who only eats organic foods or only eats um, drinks filtered water or only has foods that are non-GMO or somebody who is only willing to have things that are sourced from sources within 20 miles of their home or there's just this onslaught of fear out in our social media and our um, and and just in our information streams that for people with orthorexia that becomes obsessive. And so that's their their eating disorder. The orthorexia, that's like the... Obsessive with... They're obsessed with eating healthy. Okay. Would that fall under disordered eating or eating disorders? And can you define that for us? Or the difference, I guess. That's that's an actual eating disorder. Avoidant restrictive eating disorder is also an eating disorder. An avoidant restrictive eating disorder previously wasn't as well defined, but... Now we actually have um, treatment protocols for avoidant restrictive. These are patients that may have had a really bad experience with food, um, whether they had a choking reaction because they developed an allergy to shellfish or they had um, a bad experience. Maybe they got food poisoning in a restaurant and just couldn't stop vomiting. Or sometimes it's a patient who may have had watched somebody get sick on a food or watched somebody choke. Um, but something inside of them is triggered and these eating disorder behaviors come from it. They're very fear-based. And what happens is these patients then avoid food and restrict food. And sometimes they avoid and restrict water too, where they just feel like they can't swallow anything. So it can be really serious. And I'm seeing it now in my practice in younger and younger children. So that's Mm. a really scary prospect because it really can affect their growth and development. It can prevent them from attending school. Um, These patients really do need specialized treatment as well. 
So you had asked the question about disordered eating versus eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And it's really a continuum, Sarah. That's what it is. So if you look at it, you'd say, okay, some some people are sort of healthy concerned is what I oftentimes say. I, I, I love, as a dietitian, healthy concerned patients, people who are paying attention to what they're eating, care about what they're eating, but also not fearful of what will happen if they don't eat that way or fearful if they do eat something that's outside of their sense of comfort, whether it's a food that they think is maybe less healthy, which Mm. is always defined individually. Um, And it's always a funny thing to ask a dietitian to define that because we're all so different. But, you know, something outside of their sense of comfort, um, when they have those kinds of things, they are able to roll with it. Concerned Well realizes that you can eat a lot of foods, a wide variety of foods, all different settings, all different cultures, and you can be fine. Your body has the ability to handle and manage all of that, and, um, and you're safe, and, mm. and your body weight is going to be stable. Then you kind of move into the continuum of more disordered thoughts, and those people tend to be a little bit more obsessive in their thought process. They tend to have a lot more shame if they overeat or eat things that they perceive as wrong, um, or they tend to be much more um, negative about their bodies, um, but they equate their food intake with their bodies constantly. Um, even if they know that their bodies are genetically aligned with their family members, you know, they may know that their family members are, um, are heavier in the thighs, but they feel very personally, um, fearful and concerned that they might have eaten pizza and chips at a party because they feel like they've done that. So that's that would be more of a disordered eating where they start altering their behaviors based on um, a thought process or fear, um, sometimes an obsession. Sometimes you'll get anxiety causing that or obsessive compulsive disorders, some of that coming out in that. Um, but a lot of times it's, it's really shame-based uh, and that I do see a lot in young adults, a lot of, and young mothers um, where they feel like they should, their bodies should bounce right back. They should look um, like they did pre-pregnancy after delivering a child. Um, and then also I think you do see that in, in men um, where there's a lot of disordered eating in men um, where they have a ideal body image and so they are working very hard to be seen in a specific way mm-hmm. and um, an eating disorder would be then the next step sort of taking on the next uh, level of intensity mm-hmm. and that would be where the psychological diagnosis comes in so then they have compensatory behaviors prior to the eating disorder phase mm-hmm. they probably don't have a lot of compensatory behaviors they might have a lot of self negative self-worth but it's not they're not making what is that of, word you're saying compensatory com- compensatory I'm can sorry. you define that sure <laughs> so compensatory behaviors for a bulimic for example a compensatory behavior would be purging so it might be somebody who's vomiting after eating the person who's got disordered eating um, or or just starting in that process might think i'm so full i wish i could get rid of this food Somebody with an eating disorder then has moved into that place of, I'm so full, I'm going to get rid of this food. That's very helpful. 
or they might say, um, I am, I, I feel very uncomfortable in my body. Somebody who has a little bit of disordered eating, I feel uncomfortable. And then the person with an eating disorder would actually do something about that, whether it's restricting, I'm not going to eat for the next 24 hours because I don't feel good about my body. I feel fat. There's typically a lot of lingo that goes along with it. That's really interesting, Sarah, because it's you like language and you like words. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, you can hear the conversation switch from I feel fat, you know, kind of having that, that sort of statement of state of matter in a feeling conversation. I'm like, well, so frequently I, I'll say with an eating disordered patient, I'll say, you know, fat isn't really a feeling, it's a state of matter. So tell me what you're really feeling. And mm-hmm. oftentimes when they identify that they're not really feeling fat, they start to understand that there's a psychological piece underneath all of this negative thought that they didn't mm-hmm. even realize that they had. Okay, that is very interesting, and I want to I want to go there a little bit more. So, when it comes, okay, I feel like I've got so many swirling things I want to ask you. So, one, I guess, how do you know if somebody is just being healthy? Like, let's say that they look at themselves and they go, you know, I want to lose some weight. I want to feel better about myself. How can you tell the difference between that and somebody with just Disordered eating, so not an eating disorder, but how, when does it flip into disordered? If you could briefly touch on that, because then I want to ask a question about the psychology behind it. So concerned well is a really healthy place to be. Somebody who's concerned well is um, you can hear that in their confidence and how they talk about their eating. There's less self-deprecation and more um, positive statements. So they might say, I'd like to lose some weight. I'm coming to see you as a dietitian to help me lose some weight. I am interested in feeling better or improving my um, my blood sugar control or my ability to perform in sports. I do a lot of sports nutrition. So um and and so and they'll talk about it from that perspective. They have a mission or a vision. It's in line with sort of the some of the things that they identify with themselves as a as a whole picture and they want to seek good healthy pathways to do it. Mm. If you move into disordered eating, oftentimes those people have already established some behaviors that as a dietitian they're coming in sort of thinking that they're concerned well, but mm. they're actually already in some disordered patterning. Meaning that oftentimes those patients have already set up a list of um, safe foods and unsafe foods to have around. There's, um, they tend to be more fear aligned and um, more triggered to negative thoughts and behaviors based on what they've done. So they might have been the person who says to me when they come in um, to a visit, they might say, oh my gosh, I had a horrible weekend. I had ice cream on Sunday and I had pizza on Saturday. And so you can hear sort of that, that processing. They don't have an eating disorder, but they are already labeling foods in really negative ways, um, sort of saying negative things, um, and really 
maybe even some of the things like, oh, I know this is the reason why I have the thighs I do because I love ice cream or Mm. that sort of um, conversation. Oftentimes with those patients, even just in conversation, you can tell that they have some disordered eating behaviors, some disordered thought processes about food. They're connecting food with a lot more negativity as opposed to um, a more positive. Yeah. Okay, so talk to us about... I can see how culture and Instagram and social media and celebrities, and I'm not blaming celebrities, I'm just saying like the culture of looks and, you know, all of that, how that could lend itself to disordered eating. But I'm wondering a little bit about um, eating disorders, the psychology behind that. Is this something that's a genetic? Is it a disease? Is it because somebody you know, had a traumatic childhood, the nature versus, you know, nurture stuff. Like talk to us a little bit about why people are having eating disorders. Yeah. Just talk to us a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. That is such a hot topic. It's fun that you should ask me that question because more and more and more is coming out on that. Um, Mm -hmm. We know absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt that um, the tendency toward eating disorders is found on the DNA. So we know it's genetic. Um, There's a very high percentage of eating disorders. Um, I think it's like 50%. If you have a parent, then you have a 50% chance of developing an eating disorder. I think that's the current statistic. Um, And the work was done even in this region. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I had patients in the study out at Temple that um, was looking at the genetic connections. So we know that eating disorders run in families. We also know that um, there is a huge component of our culture that influences it. Um, So you say nature versus nurture, and I've heard it said that it is an equal amount of both, which um, historically, so when I started working in this, it was pretty much seen as a nurture thing, that they didn't know that there was such a nature component to it. But what we've found with the nature component is that we can also predict and watch for Mm -hmm. and train parents who've struggled with their own eating disorders and how to work with their children and help them not to develop those patterns and behaviors that they're that they had suffered with. So it's been good to know that. Um, it's a little scary, I think, for a lot of parents to realize if they've had an eating disorder that they have a really high chance of passing that on. But it's not a lot different than any other addictive disorder. So if you look at alcoholism, for example, they have a very high percentage of a genetic component to that. There's a very high percentage of depression, for example, that's genetically mm. is on the DNA. So we know that component of the the nature piece. Mm -hmm. And then we can alter the nurture piece Mm. by that. That being said, um, no time in culture has ever been as visual as it is now. And so, and, and also have we never, we've never had the ability to make alterations in our visual perception of just the average item. Mm. Um, you know, all of the types of filters that are available and all of the edits that you can make in pictures f- from, you know, painting um, or uh, photographs of nature to totally reconstructing a woman's face to look like you want it to look, redoing their skin or 
you know, editing out thighs or whatever you are mm. seeing. Um, and so there's a big player as well as that, you know, even if we don't talk about it, mm-hmm. it's there because what we're visually seeing isn't real. Yeah. You know, it sort of makes me wonder like, you know, what do, what can we do? Like, what can we do if we, like, how do we help our daughters and our sons not have eating disorders? Or if we start to see it, what can we do? What words can we use? And I want to address that a little bit later, but I guess two things stand out to me. You said men struggle with eating disorders. And I often think it's a girl or a woman's disorder. You know, like women are the one who struggle. Tell us, you know, how many men are you seeing struggling with this? And does it look the the same as like the way a woman's does? Yeah, I actually see a pretty decent percentage of men and, um, and it's increasing and the age demographic is shifting all the time as well. So my youngest patients now are in elementary school and my oldest patients are in their seventies and eighties. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're seeing boys in elementary school. I'm assuming girls as well, but boys in elementary school with eating disorders Yeah. Unfortunately, the answer is yes, Sarah. Um, And girls as well, uh, young and old and male and female are really um, dealing with eating disorders. And some of it is that we're talking about them in different language. We're able to speak more freely about them. We're able to identify the signs and symptoms because there's been more awareness. But some of it is the increase of eating disorders in men in in some of those demographics that uh, we had previously not identified with our typical clientele. You know, we typically would be looking at college age women, mm-hmm. um, did a lot of, a uh, lot of awareness. I would say probably 10, 15 years ago on college campuses, mm-hmm. a lot of awareness, um, did a lot of poster sessions, did a lot of public speaking, a lot of um, really just improving the ability for people who are suffering to communicate to their providers in ways that were useful and meaningful and making connections and getting the help that they needed and seeing that recovery is possible and getting hope that they're not alone in a dark hole of this eating disorder. And in the process of that, I think what happened is there were men who started to resonate with that ability to sort of speak out and and say, you know, hey, I've been doing that too. I've been manipulating my eating or restricting my eating or purging or um, just being really hyper vigilant about certain areas of my eating behaviors because of thus and such. We also know that trauma is a huge, huge player in eating disorder development. And so as we're having more and more conversations, more free and open conversations about trauma, we're having more free and open conversations of the consequences of the trauma. Mm. And that is where we're seeing more eating disorder behaviors. We also see it. um, So we have a real vulnerable group in the LGBTQ group. That's a very vulnerable group for eating disorders. And we have to be highly sensitive because of you know, how they see themselves, where they see themselves, and just understanding that their level of discomfort in their 
in their skin and in their society um, is a piece of developing the eating disorder, but certainly can perpetuate it if fear is underneath it, if there's a lot of shame associated. Those are all real fertile soil for eating disorders to develop. Wow. What are the... What are the... um odds of overcoming an eating disorder. I would be curious, is this like, is this, okay, I was going to say, is it like the whole um, alcoholic thing, like sort of you're always an alcoholic, but choosing not to drink, you know, kind of thing? I don't know if you've heard that, but... That, but I honestly don't believe that's true with eating disorders. I believe in full recovery, and I know I'm probably in the minority, so um, I say that to all of your listeners that I believe in full recovery. I believe that people can walk away from their eating disorder and see it as part of their learning past, and that they can live full and abundant lives. Um, I believe that that will always have a place in how they maybe process information mm-hmm. in that, you know, most people don't spend hours and hours and hours with a dietitian <laughs> um, or even in therapy. You know, I've often said some of my patients are the most wonderfully insightful, incredibly compassionate. They're the best people you'll ever want to meet. Mm-hmm. Because, and some of the reason is because is the very reason they've developed an eating disorder is they're very sensitive, they're very thoughtful, they're very aware, and they're very perceptive. And so they um, may take things more seriously. They may be more intense about certain things about their bodies. They may have a little bit more of a, a tendency to be more perfectionistic, or they might be more more self deprecating because they see areas that they feel like they should change or they'd like to change. Um, But those people given great therapy and the ability to do recovery well, like really getting access to resources so that they can do recovery well, they can be powerful forces for good. They can speak into eating disorders to their friends, to their family, to their patients. A lot of them go on into um, helping professions, whether it's nursing or it's therapy or it's um, doing ministry, different forms where they are actually, their hearts and their experiences are for good. And that's where I believe it's recovery. I believe it's recovery when it's when it's actually now turned a, a new leaf and is no longer harmful, but it's helpful. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. So what are some signs and symptoms? You mentioned that now we can um, identify more signs and symptoms. So could you, you know, I'm thinking as a parent specifically, right? Like just keeping my eyes out, paying attention, but what are some things that we can all sort of, um, I don't know, what are some identifiers of somebody who may have an eating disorder or, or if maybe you yourself are, are having disordered eating and could slide into an eating disorder. So could you talk to us a little bit about signs and symptoms and our own kind of watching out for our own disordered thinking? Mm-hmm. Well, some of the early signs for patients is just obsession, obsessive thoughts. So it doesn't necessarily even manifest in behaviors yet. But when a person is thinking about food a lot, I always joke with my patients that I get paid to think about food and I actually think about it much less than they do. (laughs) 
They are thinking about the next meal. They're thinking about what they can have, what they can't have, when they can have it. If it's acceptable, if they have this now, then what will happen later? Um, so those food obsessive thoughts, even if it didn't translate out into behaviors, you can see that in children, you can see that in adults, but very much, like you said, very much seeing that in you. If yeah. you find that you're thinking about food a lot and what you can and cannot do, the diet mentality really creates that negative place where you're constantly having to think about it. And we know that diets are not that effective in weight management. Mm. We know that there are medical conditions where you need to follow a diet. But for a patient who does not have those things, who's just finding that, that would be a red flag for me. Mm. Another red flag as a parent would be um, a preoccupation of weight. So the conversation about it, whether it's a conversation in your child talking about other people's weight or talking, comparing themselves to another person, or for example, not being okay with, you know, shopping for clothing, for example, or not um, feeling good in their skin about certain things. Mm. Um, and oftentimes as parents, we can pick up on some of that. Um, you know, we, we run a gambit because there's always that component of healthy well that you'd say, okay, well, healthy well might say, hey, I've been eating a lot of Doritos lately and I don't feel great. I find <laughs> I'm waking up with orange crumbs around my mouth and yeah. pasty taste in my mouth and I probably should brush my teeth and maybe not eat so many Doritos before bed. Like there's mm-hmm. some things that you pick up in a child that you're like, yeah, you probably could make better bedtime snack choice. Yeah. But when there's a lot of um, preoccupation, again, in body image and body size, body shape, whether it's awareness of another person or themselves, I would definitely see that as a little bit of a trigger. Anytime a child falls off a growth chart, okay, anytime, mm-hmm. and I say this wholeheartedly, as parents, we have to watch that and take that seriously. In any other profession, that would be an enormous trigger. So in pediatric cancer, when a child starts falling off the growth chart, bells and whistles and sirens are going off. Mm. And yet, sometimes in just normal medicine and family practice, when somebody drops a growth channel, we don't really pay a lot of attention to it. And so I've seen patients come into my office where their parents have known that they've been losing weight and the child has dropped a growth channel or two and no one has really said anything. Mm -hmm. And by that time, we don't know, is this a healthy behavior? Is this a food allergy or something, a malabsorptive condition that we need to do lots of testing on? Mm -hmm. But more times than not, more times than not, it is an eating disorder. And so we have to take that seriously. We can't just say, oh, well, we're going to go to gastroenterology and see if there's an absorptive problem. Far better to treat it as an eating disorder, find out it's not an eating disorder, than wait six months and have them need a higher level of care. Now they need to be institutionalized for treatment. Now they need, you know, to be pulled out of school or Mm -hmm. that type of thing. So 
anytime there's a growth channel change, that's a that's a really big indicator with with kids and young adults. Um, so as a parent, uh, obviously for yourself, um, you know it may be one of those things where you identify that you a lot of what you're deciding to do or not do in your life is weight dependent. And if that's the case, that gives you an indication that your body weight is dictating how you're living. That's more disordered than not disordered. So is that an eating disorder? Sometimes it is, but definitely more disordered than not disordered. Okay. Anxiety about food. Depression about your body; those are real personal things. You oftentimes, as a parent, can't pick that up right. unless you hear them say it or you ask really good questions. Um, more likely, you could pick that up if you were like maybe reading texts or reading, yeah. you know, um, emails, or if there would be, you know, an opportunity for them to answer something that would, you know, like a a prompt in a classroom or something like that. Sometimes you can pick it up in kids' poetry where they'll talk about some things about their body. Um, Yeah. Does that help? Yeah. And it also makes me think about the importance of just being around so that you can observe your kids because... I, you know, I often think, you know, as the kids get older and they kind of can take care of themselves more. And I've heard people tell me like, it's almost more important to be around when they're teenagers because of all the things going on. And I, I think, how could you, or like, yes, I see that because I want to be able to observe and see what's going on with my kids, you know? Okay. So let's say a parent finds out their child maybe has an eating disorder. So I'm thinking first you would uh, perhaps, you know, get them help. But when you're starting to see a kid with disordered eating, do you force them to eat? Like what is the process as a parent or a person, if you have a loved one who you think might have an eating disorder, what is that process of encouraging them or, um, like making them eat or like, what do you do? What is, what are our next steps? So a lot of it has to do with what you've observed, Sarah. If you've observed a child who is just taking bites and pushing the food around their plate and then sort of walking away um, and not getting enough to eat, not just one meal, but maybe meal after meal, um, I would highly recommend them talk to their family doctor or even make an appointment with a dietitian to talk about it. Um, but even before that, have a conversation, not at the table. Mm-hmm. So don't do it at the table. Be completely away. Maybe go for a walk, walk the dog, or sit in the living room, you know, and kind of just bring up the conversation. I've noticed that you're eating a lot less. Um, is it? Can I make your favorites? Is there? Am I needing to make a change in what we're preparing? Is there anything that you would like to eat? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just sort of opening the door in a way that's really non-threatening, and then sort of see where it goes. Um, a lot of times, what I'll hear from kids is that, and and this I say this with no disrespect to parents, but that they've become aware of healthy eating from a health class or a school assignment and they come home and the family is eating in a way that's not in line with what the teacher had shared with them. And there's a conflict there Mm -hmm. that the parents are serving um, something that they don't feel is helpful. 
Now, I, I will say that sometimes I think those health teachers way overstep their bounds and, um, and, and it, it can be very problematic, especially in a sensitive child. But in a good, healthy parent-child conversation, that might be a sign to, as the parent, to say, well, I could definitely make more vegetables. Let's, let's come up with a list of five different vegetables that we should try as a family and see if they like them. You could maybe even help me find a recipe or, you know, sort of engaging in that conversation, sort of watching them play it out. Mm -hmm. If it does not help, you still know that you've started that conversation. And then you can go back in with, hey, I noticed we, you know, we talked about eating more vegetables, but you're still really pushing food around on your plate. I'm really not seeing you eat enough. And and then um, as a parent, I would probably say, you know, ask the stomach questions, ask the the other questions, you know, what's going on. A lot of times children can say my stomach hurts, but they can't say I'm stressed. Or they can say I've got, you know, belly pain or I don't feel hungry and they can't say I'm being bullied. You know, they don't have the language for it, but they have language for physical ailments. I have a headache as opposed to, you know, I, I'm really anxious. So sometimes, depending on the age of the child, sometimes that can help. But again, I would keep that pediatrician on board. I would, you know, do a well child check or some sort of environment where you can do a weight check to see, are they still growing? Are they still processing through? Mm. If it's just a rough patch, then a dietitian can be super helpful. If they're in a serious place, the doctor will most likely refer them to a dietitian and then we'll start to take apart, you know, are they getting enough calories? Are they actually getting enough protein? Are they getting enough vitamins and minerals, fiber in order to grow and develop and or to perform in their sport? A lot of times my patients are athletes and so to perform in their sport. And then that gives me the opportunity that I become the person who's engaging in the conversation. You realize you're not getting enough you know, calories in order to continue to perform your sport or the fact that you stopped your period would suggest that your body is not healthy and well. We need to get your period back. The way we do that is mm-hmm. to feed you well, yeah. you know, kind of doing that stuff. So um, I think that answers. Yeah. So if you have somebody with a serious eating disorder, yeah. like bulimia or anorexia, you know, you hear about, like, I think of Karen Carpenter, you know, or you you read books about how, you know, people have died from these disorders. Like, How long, when you meet with a patient who has like a serious eating disorder, like do you see for them to turn sort of the page where they're stopping doing what they're doing? That's a hard and sad situation, but um, the longer that the eating disorder is entrenched, the harder it is to turn around. The more that it's ingrained in who they see they are and who they operate under, the more difficult it is to recover. I usually tell parents when they arrive, if they have an eating disorder and they've been dealing with it for a a fairly short amount of time, that it'll take about two years for most of them to get to the, get through the hardest parts. Um, And if they're very seriously ill and they present to me, uh, (laughs) if you ask any of my colleagues, I I don't pass go, I don't collect my $200, I just send them straight into a higher level of care. So I do outpatient nutrition. So I am the entry level 
and the exit level. Mm-hmm. But um, I am very fortunate in this South Central Pennsylvania to be able to refer patients to programs, residential programs, partial programs um, that will give them a higher level of care. And that is sometimes part of the time that they'll have. Now, I will say that I have patients that resolve quicker than two years. <laughs> and uh, I've often thought that it would be fun to write a book called Happy Endings mm-hmm. that would be about the happy endings for those parents and for those patients that are like, I just cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. And I have the beautiful opportunity to see the light at the end of the tunnel because I see the happy endings. Um, but that being said, everyone's process is their process and it's very personal. And Um, It's really hard because I think we have a mentality that the sooner that you get over something, the better you are. Mm -hmm. But in fact, it's a really complicated condition. It's got a lot of facets to it. And I don't necessarily believe that faster is really better, Mm -hmm. Um, with the exception of young kids, when they're young, really early eating disorders, turning that ship around fast and furious, getting the parents on board, having serious conversations, no um, no way around. We do a lot of family-based um, treatment at that level. Um, so where the parents are parenting with food and the parents are parenting with um, helping them deal with their pain and their fear. And parents are very, very engaged. The um, treatment programs that I refer patients to are very family-based. And so we really look for that connectedness in a young age. And that that we see that turnaround being much quicker. But for some of the teenagers where there's a lot of processing to it, um, I think sometimes if they take you know, even three or four years, I've heard patients who've said, you know, I spent my entire college career, so four years in therapy and sort of working on that. I actually think that really benefits them. Mm, That's really good. And speaking of teenagers, I'm thinking of, I'm picturing not a person that I know or anything, but a teenager who is, let's say their parent is like you, like they can see a problem. And the teenager is like, I'm fine. I can deal with it on my own. Mm-hmm. Like I, maybe they recognize it or they don't think it's that bad. What is a parent supposed to do? Can you, do you force them to go get help? Like what do you do? So oftentimes that does happen um, because a lot of eating disorders are conditions of shame and denial. So um, sort of by nature, mm-hmm. there oftentimes has to be an intervention. And that's a husband intervention. That's a boyfriend intervention. That's a girlfriend intervention. That's a best friend intervention. That's a parent intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lover independ- intervention. It's it's oftentimes someone else on the outside that's saying, this has gone too far. Um, and the thing I always tell my patients is part of the reason why it's so hard to identify is because the broken part, the piece that's really hurting and broken is, is your brain and your brain is processing your, your body's needs or lack of needs. So your brain is what's saying, I'm not hungry, even though your body is starving. Mm -hmm. Your brain is what's saying, I can handle this even though it's clear that you're not handling it. Does that make sense? So because it's a psychological disorder, it Mm -hmm. all happens between the ears and behind the eyes. And yet, as a dietitian, I'm 
wired and geeked out to do the physical part, which is a really, really small piece of this. It's an important piece because we know that they can't do the mental health piece unless they're fed. Um, A malnourished mind won't process what needs to happen in therapy. So any treatment program worth its salt is going to really push the nutrition part very, very early and very, very hard. So my job is sort of the more difficult conversations early on, and that is, this is what you need to be eating, this is when you need to be eating it. So some parents will say, you know, this is what's going to happen, take an authoritative kind of heavy hand and just say, you know, you will do this. Sometimes patients will have an involuntary committal where someone will actually, you know, the physician will involuntarily hospitalize them in a mental health institution to sort of get them stabilized because they don't see it. Um, As in any other mental health condition, involuntaries are are not uncommon in mental health Mm -hmm. situations because of just the nature of the condition. Um, It's pretty rare that a parent can force a child to eat well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I would say that as being a dietitian for 33 years, I can say that from toddlerhood <coughs> all the way through. It's, I, it's very rare that a parent can force a child to eat and do it well. Um, so I usually will tell parents, you're off the hook. Blame me. I'm the one who can say this is what needs to happen. I'm using, you know, all the science. I'm using all the formulas. I'm using all of the, all the background that I have and personalizing a meal plan for them. So I am actually making it sort of tailored to their child. Their job is to basically blame me, but also execute the plan. (laughs) And so sometimes it's really hard on parents because they don't want to have that much involvement. They've sort of emancipated themselves from the situation because it was so painful. And then we're telling them, hey, you need to get back involved again. You need to get in the thick of it. You need to help. Um, Some kids don't have parents that are willing to or engaged at all. Um, And so their support people come from different places. And that's not necessarily bad. It's just you, you have to pick the right people that, you know, so that there's a lot of consistency. Yeah. That's good. That's helpful. Okay. So before we wrap up, I just said, I, I just have two more questions. Tell me something that we don't know about eating disorders that we would be surprised. So one, for example, I was surprised at how many men and how many boys and then elementary students have eating disorders. That really surprised me. What is something else that we would be surprised to know that could be helpful about eating disorders? I think of a couple of them straight up. One of the ones that my patients are always surprised at is that people with anorexia nervosa, so that eating disorder where they're restricting food, um, most people assume that they're not eating. And that is actually extremely inaccurate. Mm. They are typically eating throughout the day, but they are eating hypocaloric. So frequently, I will get patients in my office that will eat one meal a day or maybe two. Anorexics tend to eat six, seven eight times a day, but they're just not getting enough calories. 
So that's one that I think people are oftentimes surprised that they actually eat more frequently. They tend to be um, just really, really low calorie items. Another thing that might be surprising is that a lot of um, we're seeing a lot more senior citizens identified with eating disorders and um, and and the long-term effects of malnutrition showing up in these senior citizens. So whether it's uh, cognitive changes like dementia from the malnutrition or it's osteoporosis in their bones, so um, the dowager's hump, um, what we find is what we are finding now that we're identifying it more effectively is that there are a lot of, I say specifically women, because I, I really have worked a lot with women um, in this realm, maybe because they live a longer statistically. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a reason, but actually it's kind of interesting um, where these women have been restrictive eaters for probably since they were maybe even young adult women, mm. and they've been restricting for years and years and years. Um, they have medical consequences of it, but they have survived all those years of malnutrition um, only to have those consequences show up in their, in their later life. Okay, so my last question is, let's say there is somebody listening right now who is struggling with disordered eating, or an eating disorder and hasn't talked to anybody or hasn't told anybody yet, what would you say to them? You're safe. You can do that. You can speak out. Um, there are people that understand and can hear you. There are people who've experienced it and want to listen. Um, there's no judgment when it comes to that um, which has been a burden in your life for a really long time. I would say there's hope. Um, eating disorders feel like a cage and um, a lot of patients will feel like they're drowning under the weight of the pressure of the eating disorder and the shame and the, and the lies that they have to keep maintaining in order to keep their eating disorder behaviors alive. Um, and there's hope. There's hope outside of that. Um, I would say don't live another day alone and scared in that. Um, even talking about it can be helpful because it starts to validate that something's not right. And that in and of itself gives you power and gives you your voice back. And a lot of my patients, um, they cover up their voice by their eating disorder. Either they cover up their anger or they cover up their fear or they cover up their shame. Just speaking out gives you voice. I would say... To that person, you never know who you're going to impact by sharing it. Uh, you might be surprised how many people come alongside of you and relate completely to what you're talking about or what you're going through. And you might be surprised at how ignorant people are. Sometimes people are just plain ridiculous. And, and that's unfortunate, but it is, it is the way it is in all realms. Um, there are resources online that you can access that you don't even have to step out of your house. 
you can pull up. Um, NIDA is a website, so that's the National Eating Disorders Association, has a wonderful website um, that you can even take a quiz on and pursue it a little bit more. And also, I, I, the, the last thing I would say is that you're worth it. You're worth worth seeing that recovery, whether it's from your long family history, genetically wired in you, your mom had it, your grandmom had it, um, and you're struggling with the same story, or whether you were a victim of trauma and you developed it, or maybe you're somebody who loves somebody who has an eating disorder. Yeah, your worth is there. Your value is, is important and... Uh, and eating disorders can keep you held back in those places um, that, that you want to bloom. I mean, I've seen so many amazing athletes come through their eating disorders only to be stronger and better at their sport. Women who um, couldn't have a relationship because they were just so sick would just collapse under the weight of their eating disorder, you know, develop healthy relationships and even have families and perpetuate health behaviors, you know, good things can happen. That's really excellent, Marie. And I would just add that, and you know this, Mm -hmm. that God wants to heal us, that God wants us to be free. And so, uh, Marie, that was excellent. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm so grateful that you came on. You guys can always email podcast at sarahmay.com. If you have questions or comments, I can pass them on to Marie or... If you have any other questions or comments, and uh, the links that she mentioned, uh, I don't know what that site was again, but I'll, yeah, I'll I'll put that in the show notes. So again, Marie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Ooh, thank you for having me, Sarah. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. If you like this podcast, if you've found it helpful, please take a minute to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not, so your review matters. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast.